Welcome to episode 74 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your, co- I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So today we are wrapping up our Summer of Archetypes with the coming-of-age narrative. Mm-hmm. So we kind of purposefully left this to the last because in many ways it's the broadest of all archetypal narratives, I think. And also, I mean, it's almost, at least in my opinion, it's kind of the only archetypal narrative I like to read. It's probably why I read and write YA and children's fictions, cause, children's fiction, because that's what I prefer. I prefer to read about a character's growth and journey from one state of being to another. I mean, I guess you could say all books really are all fiction is about change, but there's something to me about the coming of age narrative that I really particularly love. Mm. Um, Do you think all YA books are coming of age narratives? Um, to some extent, yes. Or at least I feel like they should be because, so I was talking about this with another group of writers um, about the difference the difference between middle grade and young adult, and they're both children's. And I mean, there's really no genre distinction, right? They're like, for example, YA and middle grade are not genres; they are categories of, of fiction. And the reason being is that middle grade and YA encompass all genres. There's middle grade adventure and mystery. There is a there is YA romance and fantasy. So these categories encompass all genres. You guys can go back to our genre podcast if you want to take a look at those and listen to what we categorize in the business as genres. Um, but there, I think... All children's fiction, I mean all good fiction, but there is something about moving from a state of innocence to a state of experience that I think is pretty common in Kidlet. Um, the difference between, for example, middle grade and young, and young adult is not content per se, but how that is treated. Um, so for example, in middle grade, it's often about the like you have a child protagonist who is navigating the world on their own kind of away from adults for the first time and having adventures for the first time um and by the end of the middle grade journey they've come to a different better understanding of the world around them and the relationships they have YA is a little bit different in terms of how that's treated in that it's often a young person doing adult things for the first time so by the end of a YA novel or a YA series, they've come to, they've actually left childhood behind. Um, and again, this can happen in middle grade too. There are various stages of, of growing up. So anytime you move past one of those milestones is another coming of age. <laughs> there is a, a thing Kelly had retweeted earlier today that I saw that it was every 90s kid has three coming of age ages, which is when you turn 18, when you turn 21, and when you discover that Natalie and Bruglia's cover, uh, song Torn is a cover. 
Oh, it was a rough day for me today when I learned that truth. I, I was like, wait, what? Right? Right? That was my exact reaction. Mind blown. Um, so, you know, obviously there are different stages to overcome in a coming-of-age narrative. So it's not like it's one particular story. But um, for me, the one, the narrative that I love best is when a character moves from a state of innocence to a state of experience. And that's kind of generally why I like coming of age. What about Mm you? Uh, Do you like coming of age narratives? And if so, what would you define as coming of age narrative? I do. You know, I do agree with you that um, as a category, YA and the things that it deals in does tend to have coming of age kind of as a central core um, aspect of, you know, the category itself. Um, So I agree with that, but that's not necessarily how I thought of it. If I was going to be the person answering the question first, I probably would have because in my mind, when I think of coming of age, I think of a very specific like type of story. In my mind, they're usually contemporaries. Um, they're usually, you know, I don't think of fantasies as coming of age so much. But of course, you're right. There certainly are fantasies that are about coming of age. They're just set in that world. So I don't disagree. It's just, I guess, in my mind, when I think about it, I don't I don't think about it as like that all encompassing thing. To me, I think it generally means like a contemporary story um, about someone crossing the threshold into adulthood uh, for the first time. So I guess I kind of have like a, a more classic take on it, but I like the expanded view. I'm going to try to shift my thinking to well, I guess be that because way. My favorite coming of age stories are all fantasy. Mm hmm. Um, Peter Pan is really, uh, to me, a classic coming-of-age story, particularly for Wendy. Um, For uh, His Dark Materials is a coming-of-age narrative, kind of literally and metaphorically on every level, almost allegorically a coming-of-age narrative. Um, Because the themes in that book are really about when you move from childhood into adulthood, your demon's shape becomes fixed. You have a better understanding of who you are, and therefore the external manifestation of your soul becomes fixed. Um, So there's that, and there's, um, this is more middle grade, but it is the fourth book in the Chronicles of Prydain by Lloyd Alexander, Terran Wanderer, which to me is actually the most perfect coming-of-age story that there possibly could be. So for me, I tend to think of it a little bit more broadly. I mean, there are obviously contemporary coming-of-age novels that I love as well, or contemporary for when the yeah, book was when written. Yeah, when they were written. <laughs> because some of them are now historical no in hindsight. Yeah. Um, yes. That's actually a, a tag I have on my own personal Goodreads when I'm tracking reading, because I have, like, historical and this and that, and then I have ones that are historical in hindsight, because they were contemporary where they're written, but they were written, like, 30, 40 years ago, so right. no longer contemporary. <laughs> Um, I mean, what are your, what are some of your favorites and what do you think is a commonality across those? You know, um, I think when I think of coming of age stories, I think a lot about little women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I, I think a lot about catcher in the rye, although it's not really a typical coming of age, um, because the book kind of 
ends before Holden becomes an adult. It kind of just ends with him realizing he needs to become an adult, but he hasn't done that yet. So it's not a true coming of age story in that sense, but I, I tend to lump it in with those um, in my mind. Um, Little Women was a big one for me, I think, growing up. Um, what were some other ones that I was thinking of? I can't. Those two are the big ones in my head. Um, but Little Women, for sure, I think, for me, I started reading that book as a child. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that that follows the March sisters throughout much of their um, you know, the last phases of their childhood through their young adulthood and until the, they become adults um, eventually. And it's a book that I read over and over again, and I can see, you know, different things in it, depending on where I'm at in my life at different times. And, um, and you know, and so for me, I think that was pretty emblematic of a book that follows people, you know, as they, as they leave their childhood behind them in bittersweet ways sometimes. Yeah, bittersweet for sure. So do you know there's um Little Women is published in two parts. The first mm-hmm. the first Little half Women is and then Good Wives. Good Wives. I hate Good Wives. I hate it. Yeah. I loathe <laughs> Good Wives. So I always stop reading at the end of Little Woman proper. Um and I found this interesting because it's actually published differently here than it was in the UK. So they are published as two separate books in the UK, Little Women and Good Wives. Um, And spoiler, I don't know how spoilery this can be. Can you spoil Little Women? (laughs) Could you spoil uh, Little Women? But Beth dies in Good Wives. But she does not die in Little Women. Mm -hmm. And so people get kind of confused by this. Um, What do you mean Beth dies? For like a lot of UK readers who never read Good Wives, they're like, what do you mean Beth dies? like what why i mean i kind of understand like i read little women and good wives and then i never read a single i never read a single book about the marches ever again because i oh really i hated good wives so much i read Um, them all i was i was deep into the louisa may alcott (laughs) i read her romance novels that she wrote (laughs) not about the march sisters uh i mean i guess it's a little bit like at a certain point because I mean, as with so many of us growing up, I was really, really big fan of Joe and Lori. And mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mind how... I don't necessarily mind that they don't end up together. And I don't even mind that he ends up with Amy. I just hated how it happened so yeah. much that it felt so false. And it felt... And they got boring when they got married. In my opinion, they just got boring when they got married. So I was just like, they I don't really care. They get super boring. And I'm not into the professor either. So Joe didn't get a better ending either. Yeah, The Good Wives is kind of a hot mess. When I read it, it was in one volume, but they were delineated as two books within the volume. So I knew that they were two separate books. But I, as I most people do, books. I tend to lump them. Did you really? I had two separate books because they were both illustrated. Um, so mm. we had Little Women, and that was illustrated, and then Good Wives, which was illustrated. So I've always known them as being two separate books. Um, I, I mean, there are other things I disliked about. I mean, first of all, if Joe wasn't going to end up with Lori, clearly she's a lesbian, so why does she end up with the professor? Right. Um, like, there's just a lot of things I just disliked about Good Wives. Plus, I just, I do tend to like stories about younger people in general. The same thing happened to me with Anne of Green Gables. I love essentially the first 
well, the first three, skipping Winnie Poplars and then Anne's House of Dreams, and then yep. skipping them again to Rilla of Ingleside. Because um, I liked Anne, when, the, when we first meet Anne and Anne of Green Gables, she is 11, and I think the first book covers the years 11 to probably like 14 or 15, maybe even 16. And mm-hmm. then Anne of Avonlea is like 16, 17, 18. And then Anne of the Island covers her college years, so it's 18 through early 20s. Windy Poplars, I don't even know when it was, because I keep skipping it, so I, I don't remember. Yeah. But she must be in her early 20s, because by the time House of Dreams comes out, she's finally marrying Gilbert, and she's 25. And yeah. House of Dreams takes her through her first year of marriage. Um, and then I could care less about her children. I don't could care less about her married life. Again, I just don't like adults. I think adults are boring. I don't want to read about an adult life. Um, yeah. So as a result, I keep returning to stories about yeah. young people and coming of age. Yeah, I think that, you know, to go back to what you said about kind of like historical contemporaries, contemporary at the time they were written, um, for a long time there was no young adult literature. And right. so, you know, this this coming-of-age story was kind of the closest thing we had to that. And so a lot of classics, I think, tend to fall into this narrative because, you know, you've got things like um, Great Expectations mm-hmm. and um, other ones like that that were... Well, that Catcher were, in the Rye is a really good example because yeah. that was not YA when it, uh, when it came out 70s, 60s? Yeah. Um... So, you know, obviously, YA, as we know it, really exists post... Well, children's fiction has existed for a long time, but I think But the true young adult, I mean, it was like forever Judy Bloom, like, and that was a kind of a standalone book. Like, early Tamara Pierce was... Because, I'm just thinking, because, like, Kelly and I really did grow up in kind of in that transitional period between children's and and then sort of differentiating children's into like chapter books or early reader and middle grade and young adult because when I was for example when I was 11 there's one book case in my local bookstore which was Romans one book case that just said young adult and I remember the books on that book case were like Sweet Valley High um and Tamara Pierce and Garth Nix, um, and which, which is funny because I've read all the Tamara Pierce. I did not read Sweet Valley High. I was not into the Sweet Valley High books, and I did not read the Garth Nix Sabriel books until I was an adult. And I'm so mad about it because when I read them as an adult, I was like, this, this would have been so perfect for goth child me. Like I, I'm so <laughs> mad I missed out on these books at that age. Um, so, and it kind of, it sort of grew, and then obviously Harry Potter, which started out really what we would consider middle grade. Like, you would say the first half of Harry Potter is middle grade, and then it kind of got older. And, but really Twilight, I feel like Twilight is the absolute marker of where YA, as we mm. know it, kind of started. Um, with older protagonists. Yeah, I think that's fair. And the lens being told from the protagonist's point of view, being very close and emotionally immediate. And that's really a thing that characterizes modern YA is emotional immediacy. Because a lot of older books that get categorized as YA in hindsight 
a lot of them do contain that emotional immediacy. Um, but a lot of early children's books featuring older kids sometimes were a little bit more distant. So there's a sense of time being compressed in that you got to see the child grow up and have these realizations, whereas a lot of modern YA is very close. The lens is very close on your protagonist. That's often why there's a lot of first person, but it's not just that. I mean, there are a lot of YA that's told in third, but there's still that very close lens on your protagonist. Um, but yeah, like Catcher in the Rye got recategorized. A lot of adult books, a lot of science fiction fantasy got recategorized. Um, even, for example, I Capture the... This is not science fiction fantasy, but it's I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, which got recategorized as YA as well, even though it was published as an adult novel when it first came out. So I think that's also why I tend to consider coming of age pretty universal. I don't really think of it as belonging to one category or another. There are adult novels I would probably consider coming of age. Uh, Black Swan Green by David Mitchell. Yes. Um, that uh, That's a little bit trickier, too, because it's an adult perspective on younger years. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a little bit of a digression, I guess, into differentiating between YA and adult. But oftentimes, again, with that emotional immediacy, even though... There's a lot of real nuance and closeness in, in talking about his younger self. There's still a lens of kind of objective hindsight distance in the way the story is being told to you. And that is really what differentiates often an adult story about a young protagonist and a YA novel. Um, so, yeah. Did you ever read... The Pigman by Paul oh, yes. um, Zindel. I love that book. Is it Zinfandel? Zindel? I can't it's Zindel. 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 It's not Zinfandel. That's a wine. Wow. <laughs> wow. Really? It's on her mind right now. Oh, I wish. I loved that book. We read that. I think I was in seventh grade and it was like an assigned book. It was an assigned book. book for us too. I remember that it was probably summer reading for like seventh. Mm-hmm. Seventh, probably like between 7th and 8th grade, I think, was when yeah. we read The Pigman. I remember that book as having such a strange, like, emotional impact on me. Because I'd read all these other books that, um, you know, that we'd mentioned that are sort of coming-of-age narratives, but are more classic um, or older. And this one wasn't quite contemporary. I don't think it was written in the 90s, which is when I'd read it. Um, it's pretty old, I actually. I think yeah. Old. But it felt more contemporary than those other ones, you know, certainly more so than Little Women or, you know, any of the other books. Um, it felt more contemporary. And it was, I just remember being so fascinated by the fact that the protagonists, John and Lorraine, mm-hmm. um, that's very were, 70s names, actually. Yeah, right? Okay, so now we know when it was written. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember being so fascinated by the fact that they were not, um, that they were flawed. Mm-hmm. It, it was the first time I remember seeing, you know, 
characters that were older than me because I think you know they were in high school and I was reading it in middle school, but um, but that 15. were relatively my age um, that were not bad people. They weren't villains, you know, but they were flawed. They did some good things and some bad things and made some you know some good choices and some bad choices. And um, the story is just heartbreaking and wonderful. Uh, and it, I remember reading it and and being like, this is not like other books I've read. And I think that was the, that bittersweet quality of like the coming of age story. That's the first time I remember identifying with it was reading the Pigman. The Pigman definitely was the first time I'd read about teenagers from a teenager's perspective, because a lot of times at that point, a lot of the books we read for school, if they had teenaged characters were really still from the point of view of a younger child Mm -hmm. or an adult perspective on a teenager. So the Pigman was the first book that I remember. There are so many distinct things, and I agree with Kelly that emotionally had a huge impact on me um, because of that narrative closeness. Like I felt uncomfortable reading a bit. A lot of times, reading about the feelings that these characters were going through at the same time, like they were, they just the emotions that they had were at that time to me completely foreign. Now, granted, I was a pretty late bloomer as a child, but like I a lot of the feelings that they underwent are very relatable to me, again, in hindsight, when I actually got to that age and I was experiencing those things. But the the closeness, how they're kind of a, they're kind of just assholes. Like, yeah. they're terrible. They're not terrible. I mean, they're, they're teenagers. They're thoughtless and they're inconsiderate, but surprisingly sweet at the same time. Um, and I, and there's that tension there. I mean, I just, there are certain things I remember about the narration that are very particularly teenagery. So John is really kind of a dick. Um, mm-hmm. and they have a school librarian that I think they call like the grasshopper or the cricket because yeah. when she was just a little heavy set. And so her nylons rubbed together like the sound of a cricket chirping, like those little details I still remember because then I was like, wow, that's such a mean thing to think about somebody. And it stuck out in my head because that was like the first time I'd ever encountered a character like that who was just mean <laughs> to, you know, and he was mean to Lorraine as well. He's not very nice to her. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting things. And of course, the two of them meet the self-proclaimed pig man, Angelo Pignati, and it's just they come in contact with this sweet old man and their lives become changed because of what they've learned from him. It It's really, really beautiful and I loved it. Um, I don't know. I guess I would, I would call it a coming-of-age narrative, but I guess I didn't really think of it as that at the time. Yeah. Whereas I feel like when I read Taron Wanderer, I knew this was a coming-of-age story. Yeah. And I read Terror and Wander when I was like 10. Um, and that really is like Terror and Wander is the fourth book in the Chronicles of Prudane series. And we're not actually sure how old Terran is at this point. Because he's like 14, I think, in the Book of Three. And like 15 in the Black Cauldron. And possibly 16 in the Castle of Lair. His, na- his age is never given. It's just kind of nebulously teenager. Um, but at this point, he's clearly on the cusp of adulthood, and this is the only book where Princess Ailonwy doesn't show up, And but he's admitted to himself now what his feelings really are for her, and he wants to figure out who he really is. 
because he's a foundling. He does not know who his parents are. He doesn't know where he comes from. He doesn't know what they are. So he asks permission from his guardian to leave the little hamlet that he's grown up in to discover who he is. And so, like, it's smaller in scale than the other books, which often deal with, like, bigger supernatural battles or, or anything like that. It's about him kind of going on various journeys and, like, in it, someone wrapped up or summed up this book with I don't know who I am so I'm going to travel the entire world until I find out which is essentially what that story is and it's also extremely bittersweet at the end where he's gone through this and he's gone gotten completely changed and his previous black and white way of thinking about things well I have to be a prince or I'm not worthy has grown and developed and changed because of the people he encounters along the way. And I definitely would say that, like, to me, this is one of the best coming-of-age narratives of all time. I've never read it, but it makes me want to read it. Oh, my God. Um, They would take you literally an afternoon. Like, each of these books are, like, 200 pages, maybe. (laughs) So um, these would be excellent read-aloud books, actually, if you and David want to do them. They are. They are a... um, I didn't know that at the time, but they are a retelling of the Welsh myths of Ma- the Mabinogion. Um, so, and it's kind of your, it is a very classic sword and sorcery type fantasy novel, but as with a lot of things Lloyd Alexander does, it's a lot more nuanced and a lot, just a lot better, <laughs> in my opinion, than like Wizard's First Rule, which like, oh man. Which I I actually read after Chronicles of Predate and was so disappointed by how I found the writing quality just wasn't as good. So like, um, yeah I yeah honestly like whatever you and David decide to read aloud next, I do actually recommend these books because also the audiobooks nice. are really good. Um, oh good. Yeah, so I don't know what. Other things do we have to say about the coming-of-age narrative? I mean, this is pretty classic. In fact, it actually has its own term in literature. It's called the Bildungsroman. Mm-hmm. Um, and if a lot of you guys have studied English literature or anything like kind of in the sort of upper levels of either high school or college, you probably have come across that term. Mm-hmm. Because it's a pretty common one, I think, for for literature. That's why I tend to think of this as the broadest one. It encompasses so much. I mean, a lot of myths, I think, are also metaphors of coming of age. You go from one aspect of your life to the next. So there are a lot, like we talked about this term specifically for James Joyce's The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, um, which sounds exactly like what it is. It's about a young man. Kind of starts with him being born, and then sort of develops into him going off to school, and it's really dull. Um, and I say this as somebody who actually wrote their final thesis on Joyce and loves Joyce to bits, but it's kind of dull. <laughs> um, I don't know. Any other thoughts that you have on the coming of age narrative? I don't know. I think it, I think one of the nice things about it is that it is so universal, you know, everybody, I mean, most people is assuming they live that long, you know, transition from childhood to adulthood. And so it's something that everyone can relate to. And it's something that everyone deals with. 
All right, then we can move on to our next segments, which is what are we working on? Um, still just client stuff. I'm hopefully getting ready to submit uh, two projects in the next couple months, one for sure in September, one a little bit later. So, yeah, writing pitch letters and wrapping up final edits and things like that. Yeah, I'm just working on book two. And this week has not gone as well as last week. Last week I was, like, on the ball and I was, like, doing so much work. And then this week I feel like... I've used up so much of my brain power that, like, every time I open the computer, I'm just like, I can't, I I know what should be done, but I can't. My brain hurts. Um, So I need to make up a lot of that this weekend, unfortunately. And then um, I found every possible way to procrastinate from writing, which is terrible, but it's true. Like, I've, you know, obviously I've been taking a lot more photographs, and I'm, I'm... I'm happy with the photographs that I'm taking because I'm, it's not that like, I'm not, it's not just the technical stuff because I had a fairly decent grasp of the technical stuff. It really is going back down to basics like composition and, you know, color and lines and all the stuff that I learned when I was doing visual arts, but never really needed to use again. But then I realized looking back on it, it sort of applies to so many different things in life. And so kind of while I'm cleaning my house or when I am kind of need mindless downtime, I often listen to lectures about this kind of a thing to just sort of, and I feel like it locks other things because with any sort of work of visual art, you need a focal point. You need a way into, into whatever you're looking at. Um, often it's a bright color, often it's a subject that's in focus for paintings and then the lines that guide you around the photo that take you, you know, really well composed photograph or a painting will do that. It will take you through the painting and it will put whatever you're looking at in context and then tell a story. And I think that's really useful for not just photography and not just for painting, but also for writing. Each chapter and each scene that I'm looking at, well, okay, so then what is the focal point? What is the point that I need to get across in this scene? How do I get there? How do I make it the focal point? How do I lead the viewer through this? It's helped me in that regard. Like, you know, like I said, creativity feeds creativity, but I do think learning across different forms of creativity really do help, if not necessarily the process of creation, but actually the work of being creative, because it takes a lot of work. You know, it's not just... The thing about writing is that it's fun to come up with book stuff. For me, it's fun to think of ideas. I don't have a problem with ideas. Ideas are not the problem. The problem is actually sitting my butt down and then getting the ideas from my head to the page. And now that I have the terrible, terrible words on the page is now going through and fixing it. I mean, I, I, I worked in much the same way with visual arts in that often before we worked on a larger piece, we would do thumbnails. So we would, you know, sketch our ideas down and then we'd kind of workshop them a little bit. We'd kind of just be like, well, I think this is a stronger composition. I think this would be better. I think this color works. And then when we're finally ready is when we work on our finished pieces and are the ones that we're going to be showing for, you know, school, around our school and stuff like that. So I think... 
I think the process is the same regardless of which discipline you choose to exercise your creativity. And the work is still work, though. It's still tedious and it's still kind of annoying, um, unfortunately. If it, were all, if it were all fun, everybody would be doing it, I think. Mm. But it's not. So, have you been reading anything? You're coming up on that deadline, Kelly. I know, I know. I was actually looking at the library last night. I was scrolling through the library app on my phone, and I was like, I need to find a book to read before, <laughs> before the end of the month, because it's coming up so soon. Um, I did not find one. I found a million more books that I put on my hold list, uh, but not one to actually read. Um, so, I think I'm going to have to go walk to the physical library and get a physical book out which means I'm going to owe $100,000 in library fees because I cannot return a library book on time. It is like something I'm incapable of doing. I've worked at multiple libraries throughout my life and never once returned a book on time, even though I worked there. Um, Not all libraries charge late fees, I guess. Does yours? That's true. I actually don't know because I have not incurred too many here so i don't know i think they must but i actually don't know if that's factual or not which is why i love the digital library loans because it just vanishes from my device when the time is up and i don't have to worry about returning it they just take it away from me because like as a kid my parents were so good about taking me to the library once a week every saturday Mm -hmm. my dad would take me and sometimes because i read so quickly my mother would take me either on tuesday or thursday yeah so that yeah. was the day we went every single week, and regardless of whether or not I finished, the book was mm-hmm. going back. So, um, but yeah, I have not checked out a physical book from the library in years. Yeah, I it's been a while. It's digital for me too. It's definitely been a while. So, but yeah, I'm aware of the deadline. I am by the next podcast recording, I will have a book to read. I don't know which one it's going to be yet, and I don't know if I'm going to finish it, but I'll have started it by then, because a month is too long. I work in the book publishing industry. It's been more than a month, actually. It's been quite a long time. Uh, And I work in this industry, and I need to catch up on what's current, so um, I do need to do that, but I haven't done it yet. (laughs) You know, and, and most of the time, Kelly and I, when we talk about what we're reading, we try to be positive, even if we don't end up loving the books that we yeah. talked about previously. But a lot of the stuff I don't even bring up because I have nothing nice to say. Yep. And that's, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, and so, you know. And I don't know if it's a reading rut because I am i don't think it is. I don't actually think it's a reading rut. I don't think... There's a certain feeling of, and I got this exact same feeling when I was acquiring books mm. at the height of the dystopian craze. Yeah. Where basically everything I read seemed, it just all, they all seemed the same to me. And I couldn't figure out, you know, even though there were differences and often significant differences across the books that were coming in, there was a sameness to them that I was very tired of and I couldn't figure out what it was I wanted to read next. And I'm a little bit at the same spot where a lot of the books that I'm kind of browsing or looking at, there is a Mm -hmm. sameness to them that is nothing to do with the quality of writing. It has nothing to do with the premise, but there is a sameness that I cannot seem to figure out what it is or why, because Mm -hmm. if I could figure out why, then I could probably figure out what I'm going to read next. But there's a lot of stuff where I think, oh, this is an interesting idea, and then I pick it up, 
and that sameness is there and therefore I end up putting them down. Yeah. I mean, because uh, to say that I haven't read anything is not to say that I'm not reading. I read every single day because I'm just reading requested materials. And I do see a lot of that in, you know, my requested manuscript as well, where there's nothing necessarily wrong with the books. They're interesting. They're great. I requested them for a reason. Um, But I do know what you're talking about in terms of that sameness um, coming across and something not standing out the way that you want it to when you're in that position of acquiring or trying to represent clients. Um, so yeah, that's hard. Yeah. So any off menu recommendations? Any off menu recommendations this week? Um, nothing new. I don't think my, husband and I started watching Halt and Catch Fire again mm-hmm. uh, because the new season is out and I really love this show and I know I've recommended it on here before it's evolved a lot it's a very different show than it was in season one and I think it's just getting more and more interesting as it goes I think it was a show that was trying to be Mad Men in the 80s when it started and that wasn't working for it <laughs> at all it had like a really enigmatic man who was brilliant, but a liar and an asshole. And it was like very much trying to do the Don Draper in the eighties sort of a thing. Mm. Um, and it wasn't interesting. Yeah, it wasn't working. And I think the show figured out that it wasn't working because in the second season it pivoted to what had been two supporting characters and essentially made them the leads and made these two women, the focus of the show instead of this, Don Draper Cipher. And I think ever since then, the show's just gotten better and better. So the fourth season is currently airing. So my husband and I have been watching that. It's really great. Um, I would say just plow through the first season and then get to the good stuff from season two on. If you're interested in watching that, um, in terms of other off menu recommendations, I don't think I necessarily have any, um, yeah, I don't I don't think I have any of those right now. <laughs> I don't have any media recommendations. I mean, our Mark and I were are catching up. It's not the most recent season of Archer. It's um I think season 7 and the most recent just aired which was season 8. Um mm. Both he and I really enjoy Archer, so we are having fun with that and they're all like 20 minute episodes they're very short so yeah. that, that goes very quickly um, but the thing that has actually legitimately taken up all of my time this week was this whole New York Times list oh my god can thing. we can we recommend that <laughs> <laughs> because who oh boy let's talk about a story that has more twists and turns than any plot ever Seriously, seriously, though, that the thing about this that was amazing is that I was fortunate enough to be watching it live, like in real time as it was happening. And you had just these people like doing investigative journalism, (laughs) reaching out to sources and trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And it was riveting. And also just, I mean just had everything that a 90s kid could want. <laughs> God, JC Shazza, what's it what's his face? Um the kid from Rookie of the Year. Um all these Buffy alums and K 
Carrot Blues top? Traveler. Carrot Top. Very bizarre. The Such whole thing was so weird. And, story. you know, we have talked on this podcast before about the New York Times bestseller list and others and about how it is possible to game the list. And that is kind of an open secret. Everybody knows that, you know, you can kind of cheat sort of and and you know buy bulk orders of your own book and whatever and um you know no one's really supposed to know which stores report but you know people have kind of narrowed it down and figured it out you know like it's it's um it's something that happens and has happened in the past and but i saw a tweet and i don't know who to attribute this to i'm sorry but somebody was saying you know everybody knows that you can game the New York Times list, and people do, but you're at least supposed to like be subtle about it. Like you're, you're supposed to not be so blatantly thirsty and horrible. Like it's, it's the thing is, it's like those who game the list, we kind of know, but like we've already heard about the book. If that makes sense, a lot of the things. Right. Most of the time, the the books that get quote gamed are often books with movie tie-ins coming out. Um, I mean, that one is a little bit chicken or the egg, obviously, because if there's a movie coming out, then people are naturally going to be more interested in the book that it's based on and etc. But um, there is actually a term for this. It's called man-made lakes, and a lot of studios do do this, where they have gotten the rights and the motion picture is in fact being made and it's coming out and therefore they create man-made lakes but or it's often or it's like a politician or it's some other public figure who's written a work of non-fiction that's often mm-hmm. typically the area of the list that gets gamed um and we kind of we know about it or if it's like it's a it's it's an established author the the scuttlebutt is that uh, James Patterson does this with a lot of with he or he did this with his YA books. But at the same time, all those copies he actually donates uh, to schools. So like, there's a little like it's an open secret that these things do happen. But it's kind of from corners that we kind of expect or know, and it makes sense for the list to be gamed, even though no one really likes to admit it. It kind of does make sense in that area but the reason this stood out was literally no one had heard of this book no one had heard of this person no one there wasn't even a movie attached to it or we'd never heard of this the publisher wasn't even a publisher until like july 28th they announced like oh hey we're a book publisher now the publisher wasn't a publisher and moreover i mean (laughs) <laughs> the publisher wasn't a publisher, but it's like, moreover, it doesn't look as though the site has been updated since like April. So it was very, it was very strange. And, um, so there's like all these sorts of twists and turns. And if you follow the whole reporting of it, it's fascinating because you do get a little bit of a inside look into how the industry works in terms of the way sales go, the way units go, because technically no one knows how the New York Times list is put together. We do know that it is weighted towards indies. Um, I will let you guys know, you know, this is kind of silence, kind of, not really, but I'm not going to give specific things, but there is an author who sold comparable units to I did the week I landed on the list. Um, but they did not make that list because they didn't have a lot of indie support, whereas I had pretty decent indie support. So it is weighted toward ind- indies. It's not sheer sales numbers. I know plenty of authors who have literally outsold 
numbers one and two on the list, and mm-hmm. but they didn't come out as number one or two because of, you know, the however, you know, the list is calculated at New York Times. So there's a lot of non-transparency there, but there's mm-hmm. so much about it, like this, so much effort that went into it, and they they clearly did research into how to game the list. Right. Didn't do it well enough to hide their tracks. <laughs> and it's so, that's like, the thing, it's so transparent. <laughs> at some point, too, people were even wondering, like, has the book even been printed? Because, like, all you were seeing online was these, like, stock photo, like, Photoshop-type covers when it's, like, the mock-up. It's, like, not a picture of an actual book. It's, like, a fake, flat picture of a book cover. And, like, the all, all the things for this all these bulk orders that were made, there were like no books in stock and had to be on order. And it was just like, does this book even actually exist? And I guess it must in some point form or another, because people have found excerpts of it. So I know it, it exists, exists to e-book. a point. <laughs> yeah. They've released it now on NetGalley. And that's the other thing. Clearly they don't know how the business works because they release the book on NetGalley after it's been published Whereas yeah. most people release, I mean, net galleys where you get arcs, digital ones. And so, yeah. Why would you put an arc of your book out for free if your book's already on sale? If you're trying to get, there's so many things that were so suspicious about this. Like, for example, to the Amazon ranking, like, first of all, they're not on, they're not in stock at Barnes and Noble. They're, um, another good indicator of whether or not a book will list and this specifically like debuts and new titles coming out because not all not all books that have high Amazon rankings hit the New York Times, but often there is a correlation. Like you've got a high Amazon ranking and it may possibly hit the list. You know, I I will at some point do a postmortem on Winter Song and Shadow Song. I think after some time after the books have come out, but I will say the reason that a lot of us were hopeful and crossing our fingers about whether or not Winter Song might hit the list was the Amazon ranking was climbing higher and higher and higher. So an Amazon ranking is not necessarily the number of people who buy it, but the number of people who are talking about it and who are viewing the page and who are, you know, so there's a lot of other algorithms that get calculated into that kind of a thing. And I think the week Winter Song hit, it was in the low thousands and ranking on Amazon. And this book, which hit number one at New York Times, and apparently sold eight, over 18,000 copies on BookScan, was ranked at 116,000. So there's a huge discrepancy there. And there were just so many things that we all in the know kind of know to look at to gauge whether or not a book has legitimate hype or buzz behind it. <laughs> it just wasn't there. So it was just like, you tried so hard and you must have spent a ton of money and you couldn't even hide your tracks. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the other books that get gamed, it makes sense. Like I said, like if a pol- book by a politician gets released, often they have high Amazon rankings. There's a lot of actual legitimate people probably going to be talking about it because the person who wrote it is a public figure. So it's just so much about this. And it clearly is like they wanted to get a movie made but thought that they would have better leverage if they could say that the book was a New York Times bestseller. And mm-hmm. a number one New York Times bestseller, but that's not even how the movie industry works. So, like, oh my god! And it, and I think the person who wrote it is 
uh, this is so mean to say, but she's like not had a lot of starring roles, but she is starring in her own book adaptation. Um, which like is not a thing. <laughs> no, no. Just, like authors out there, you're not going to get to star in your own film of your book. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it's very rare that authors even have anything to do with their own book. They often are like, oh, that's nice. And maybe they get a day on set and maybe they're an extra, but it's like actual creative control. You relinquish that when you sell the rights to studio. So it's very like, it was so, they, it's, it's like, there's a meme. It's like a four pointed star with like, it's written in Comic Sans, you tried. That's kind <laughs> of what I think of it because the piece de resistance is all of this. This book comes out at number one, and then eight hours later, the New York Times retracts and revise that, revises the yeah, list. So, which doesn't happen often. No, it doesn't happen often at all. And so, really, you tried, mm-hmm. but you didn't. No. Good job, YA Twitter. <laughs> oh, man. So that has literally actually consumed, like, the middle of my week i was just mm-hmm. watching this go down and yeah the next day i was so bored because I was like, yeah. what am i gonna follow minute by minute now it's it's just there's and the thing is it's like every hour there is something new some mm-hmm. new and it was twist. always like heightened it was things just got more and more ridiculous yeah like, it's like first you're like oh like who is this person? Hmm. And then it's like, oh, they sold this many copies. Interesting. And then you're, and they're kind of like, I've never. And it's just like the more they dug into it, it just got more mm-hmm. and more ridiculous. Like yep. she's related to a member of Insync, and all just like it just loose traveler fired her. Like, like she pulled stunts like this all the time, and it was just like, oh my god. <laughs> so it's not exactly an off-menu recommendation so far as that it's like another form of media, but <laughs> it's literally, it was like watching a TV show. Oh yeah. Very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Nice rising tension. Mm-hmm. Happy ending. Happy ending. Is good resolution. <laughs> I mean, it was like, this is a prime time drama. Someone needs to actually make a movie of this now because uh, that was great. Okay. So, it looks as though we do have a question this week. I don't, I haven't checked the email, but we did get one on Twitter, so thank you guys. Um, this one is from Amber Loves Sports, and they ask, Do you have to reveal your source material in your query letter? If you're writing a retelling of a fairy tale or folk tale, do you have to mention that when you're querying, or can you wait until you get the response from the agent to reveal that information? Um... This is an interesting question because my first reaction is to say, well, why are you interested in hiding that? I mean, if it's a fairy tale retelling, for the most part, that should be pretty obvious. Um, I would hope, you know, if you're retelling Cinderella, then there's probably some core story elements there that should be, um, you know, immediately recognizable. Um, I my this isn't um you know i don't know what your retelling is i don't know what the context is for this question um but a hesitancy to talk about your source material makes me think that it might be something like very recent or something that for some reason you don't want to disclose um i guess i just don't see the reason not 
not to share what kind of a retelling is, if it is a retelling, sometimes it doesn't matter. Like if you have a book that just draws on different sources, you know, that has maybe like sort of a relationship that's a little bit like Beauty and the Beast and a little bit like, you know, Pride and Prejudice and a little bit like this other thing. Like you don't have to go in and name every single one of your inspirations. Um, I think if you're retelling a specific known story, then that's a pretty like important part of the book. And so I'd think that you'd want to mention that. Um, I guess I just don't see a reason not to mention it. So it makes me think, what's your reason for not wanting to? Yeah, I'm a little bit, I mean, often in a query, I think re just mentioning the source material, as you've put it, just grounds the, it helps the agent kind of ground themselves in the narrative, even if it's something you don't know, or if it's something that the agent doesn't know. For example, um, Roshni Chakshi's first middle grade coming out with Rick Riordan's imprint is a retelling of the Pandava brothers um, from Hindu mythology and, and stories. So, you know, I'm not familiar with that story, but that is how it's being told. It's it's kind of being sold as being inspired by the Pandava brothers. So, except they're sisters. And I think that's really cute. So, I mean, like, even huh. though I don't know what the story is, because that's not a, a you know, a a story or a myth or anything that I'm particularly familiar with, getting that in a query would help ground Mm -hmm. me. If I were an agent, I would say, okay, so this person does know what they're talking about, as opposed to being, like, particularly we're talking about writing or retelling fairy tales from other cultures. Now, if it's a culture that is yours, but not a Western culture, I think maybe you can explain it a little bit, but it does help. I think it, even if I don't know the fairy tale, like if someone said, here's a story based on the, on the Japanese fairy tale, The Crane Wife, I don't really know that fairy tale very well, but I can easily look that up. And yeah. so then I can say, okay, then it has elements of this type of story, and therefore I get a better grounding. So same thing with if you say, or, you know, Rosh's book, this is inspired by the Vandava brothers, then I can be like, okay, I can look up who are they, like, what was the right. story. So there's, in my opinion, no real, no reason to hide that because uh, sometimes otherwise if you're saying I'm retelling a story or a myth I don't know what the setting is of your book obviously so it could be fantasy I'm assuming it's fantasy because often fairy tale or folklore retellings are but it doesn't have to be um, but some sort of speculative element if you're just sort of telling the story and we don't have any grounding for it then we're going to say I mm, this story sounds really familiar and it therefore we assume that you're not well read or that this this similarity is unintentional and therefore we would ask you like why not strengthen the intentionality um or it could be word salad like often you know you get all these things that we don't have any context for so if you were to just tell me up straight up the story of the crane wife and you're just like, and then she turns into a crane and blah, blah. And I kind of be like, but, but why? <laughs> like, yeah, ex- explain. Like, so I, I think it's just go ahead. Even if it's, it's small known or not very well known in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Do it. Yeah. I think, I think you only have to gain from including it and nothing to lose. And I think not including it could be worse than including it. 
I guess I can't think of a reason not to, and I can think of multiple reasons why including it would be beneficial. And again, a query is not necessarily going to be the final copy that you use for your book cover. So I think an query is just really enough information about your book to get the agent's attention and also to give the agent some grounding and context of what your book is about. That's all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, I know a lot of people put a lot of weight onto a query because this is what an agent looks at first. And so a lot of people stress out about that, but just to let y'all know, it's only the first step in this whole process and a query in many ways is the easiest part because you go on and you're going to continually be pitching this book, not just to an agent, but to other people, to people who've never heard of your book before. I had to Mm -hmm. do this last year when I went to the Southern Independent Booksellers Association conference. I literally sat at a table with stacks of galleys for Winter Song while booksellers came around and said, so what's your book about? So I had to sit there and I had to very, very quickly get to the essence of my story that would hopefully interest these booksellers and, you know, maybe establish relationships with them. So it doesn't end when you've gotten representation. It goes on ad nauseum and gets more difficult. So I know a lot of people stress out about it, but my point is not to freak you out even more, but to maybe just like, let it go. Just, you know what, this is, I'm just going to quickly tell you what my story is about. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be taking questions for our podcast. Um, I am, as you guys all know, I'm in the midst of revising book two. So we're just, you know, and any questions you guys have about writing, about publishing, about anything else. We did the these sort of half pint episodes a while back, except they weren't even that short. Um, so just ask us questions, send them in, and we'll try our best to get to them on air. Yeah, a um, Q&A. Q&A episode. Yeah, Q&A episode. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. I mean, we appreciate the readings, but we really love the reviews. Mm -hmm. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at sjjones on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Welcome to episode 74 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. (laughs) 
Let's take it from the top. What the fuck am I again? Oh, man. Okay, let's try it again. Got it. All right. Excuse me, my child has interrupted us. It's going to take me a minute to put on Sesame Street. Okay. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Penny, come here. My child is just screaming my name. What did I tell you? Did I tell you that I was busy and you could not call me? Yeah, um, the TV show is not coming on when it's dark. Oh, that's too bad. Would you like me to fix it for you?